This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery Entertainment Journal's Politics Podcast, the It's a Wrap edition. My name is Stuart Thompson and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, December 11th. We've just seen the fall sitting, the first for the new NDP government, wrap up on Thursday, and it was a session that wasn't short on storylines. We had angry farmers on the legislature steps, a massive climate change initiative, and some moving moments during a debate on domestic violence. We'll talk about all that, and once again I'll try to squeeze in some federal politics at the end. But as always on the press gallery, I promise to invoke closure after about 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Here in the studio, we have city columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Stuart. Provincial affairs writer Mariam Ibrahim. Hello. And general assignment reporter Alicia Sikirska. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys. Uh, to get us in the mood, I'm going to read you journal reporter Jody Cinema's quick synopsis about the session. There were days filled with 13 hours of debate, raucous rallies of farmers gathered on the legislature steps, insults of goons and gangsters that necessitated an apology, and an emotional NDP MLA who said she was scared to return to her home riding after receiving threats and being cyberbullied for her party's stance on the farm safety bill. And last night things really came to a head with people posting death threats against the Premier on Facebook and CTV Lethbridge's website. Paula, does the Wild Rose Party have a responsibility to condemn this? I think so, and I, I want to be very clear here because people have criticized me for saying this is the Wild Rose Party's fault, that they incited this, that they had stirred this up. I, I don't think that's true. I think farmers would have been almost this angry without the Wild Rose uh, uh, in the legislature also condemning this bill. I don't think the Wild Rose is responsible for the death threats, but I think that Brian Jean as the leader has a responsibility to speak to the death threats because these threats are coming from people who are small C conservatives, whether they're progressive conservatives or Wild Rose people. I think Brian Jean and Rick McIver as the interim leader of the Conservative Party have to take a public stand and say that this kind of discourse crosses a line. This is not the Canadian way. This is not the Albertan way. This is, this is something that is not People were saying, oh, it's hate speech. It's not hate speech. Hate speech is, you know, when you incite violence against an identifiable group. This is uttering threats. This is a potential criminal code offense. And when I see people publicly putting their names to these threats, you can write it off and say, oh, well, they're just venting. It's hot hair. It's hyperbole. I mean, saying you want somebody dead is not the same thing as saying I'm going to kill them. And I don't know that that police involvement would help this. But I think it is absolutely necessary for um, fair-minded, uh, law-abiding conservatives to condemn this kind of behavior. This is not tolerable. Uh, well, part of my day job as a website editor of the journalist to get rid of comments like this. Miriam, do you think that uh, MLAs or party leaders have the resources or the time to take care of this kind of thing? 
you know, I don't I don't know if they have the resources to, to sit down and, and scrub their Facebook pages, but it's certainly their responsibility. I mean, I, I think if you are uh, operating a Facebook page and there are people who are doing things that are potentially criminal in terms of the comments on it, it is sort of incumbent on you, I think, to, to, to take a look at those. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I will say definitely that whenever these kinds of issues come up, and they have already come up um, this year, I, we've seen this sort of thing happen where the Premier has received... Uh, you know, really vile threats, um, sort of along the same vein before, um, and and other MLAs will stand up to sort of say we don't condone this, uh, and I've seen that in in happen in the session um, but you know I, it seems like we're getting to a point where it's happening more and more frequently and perhaps people are feeling a little more and more brazen about it because there there doesn't really seem to be any sort of real consequence about it and I think that is a, a, the question how do you respond to this when it's you know anyone with a Facebook page can set up sit up on a on their computer and and sort of vent their frustrations out on and comments on Facebook pages where where there's probably other people who agree with those points of view interacting with them right I mean I, I don't know how you begin to get at that I think um, uh, certainly I think we're gonna begin seeing um, this issue come up more and more because it already has come up uh, multiple times this year already and this government's only six months old so the, I mean I think it is inevitable that we'll have to see some sort of response on this in a, in a real way because it's not going away. But you can't police what people say on their private Facebook pages. I mean, if people want to have private discussions amongst themselves, venting their fury at Rachel Notley over the farm bill, over the climate change initiative, that is, you know, that is protected free speech. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people making explicit threats in public forums on on public Facebook pages that are meant for public consumption. This is not private conversation. This is not just venting. Uh, and and one of those pages happens to be a page that's moderated by the Wild Rose Party. And absolutely, I mean, the laws apply when you are a publisher and if you're CTV and if you're the Edmonton Journal and if you're the Wild Rose Party and you have a public access page where people are having a public conversation and they are uh, suggesting criminal acts then I think people have a responsibility to curate at the very least and to call the police if it if it comes to that I mean as a journalist here I have received things not just on on social media, but in you know old-fashioned envelopes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was I, I was sent a whole bunch of of stuff not long ago that were death threats uh, against another politician, not a New Democrat, a, a conservative politician, and I called the police. And you know, the police came and they investigated and they took that seriously. When when you know we live in a world in which crazy people take literal pot shots at politicians. I mean, Pauline Marois, uh, when she was premier of Quebec, let's not forget that there was an assassinate, you know, maybe you can't dignify it by the term assassination attempt uh, when it's a crazy person, uh, but how many assassins are not crazy people? Uh, this is not a joke. This is not just people blowing off steam. This is dangerous. And, uh, you know, and to say, oh, well, you know, what people are saying to me this morning is, well, the NDP did a terrible job with this bill. Yup, they did. We all said that in this studio last week. They were ham-fisted, they were high-handed, their communications were contradictory and condescending, and there are many problematic things about this bill. And see, I said all of those things without saying someone should die.
Yeah, exactly. And I and I would just like to quickly point out that I think there is obviously, uh, and I wouldn't be the first person to point this out, uh, a sexist vein to all of this, and that these are women mm-hmm. politicians who are who are bearing the brunt of these really violent threats and these very sexist threats. And and I don't think that we see this um, um, when it's male leaders who are perhaps fumbling and making decisions that people don't um, approve of necessarily. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think you say see that in quite the same way. It's not quite as brazen, um, and it's not defended in in, in the same way. Um, yeah. you know, and, mm-hmm. th- and that was quite striking. I was, you know, so watching screenshots go around on on Twitter, and and seeing people, yeah, putting their name to to comments that I think, if you look at within, a, you know, it, if you look at, um, it's very clear are are violent and threats, and uh, that that you know, people, that part people, of it really astounds me. People comparing this to the Real Rebellion and saying that you know people have a right to armed insurrection, and when I see Derek Fildebrandt, who is an elected MLA, saying to me on Twitter today, well, you know, this kind of thing happened to me too. The end, you know, why didn't I condemn it when the NDP whipped up a frenzy against him? And I, he was. It's not about who's whipping up the frenzy, from what I can see in terms of what you're talking about. It's about things happening on a platform that you're providing to people and therefore needing to provide a response for it. And it's it's different. It's not just anonymous trolls on Twitter. That's what people have been really quick to dismiss. This is people's personal Facebook accounts that they are, as you mentioned earlier, putting public in a public forum where other people can see it. It's not these anonymous... Exactly. It's not anonymous... Twitter accounts that are created for the sole purpose of of being of rude trolling. and trolling—exactly—this is people's personal Facebook accounts where they post photos of their children and and what they did on the weekend, and they're making these threats in a public forum. That always blows my mind because when I am on the journal Facebook page moderating, I will sometimes see something really heinous, and then I'll click on the name, and then you'll go back to their account, and it's just some person with like family photos, and they're on vacation, and it's so bizarre that they feel okay to do this with their little photo next to their name and yeah. the heinous comment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should move on to uh, the session wrapped up this week. So we're going to talk <laughs> yes, about... the actual content of uh, what happened. Everything <laughs> else that happened in the legislature session right now. Uh, so Mariam, I'll start with you because you were actually covering the session. Uh, just wondering, anything in particular stand out to you? Any story you think was particularly big or interesting? I mean, there were obviously a lot of different moments in the paper today. We have sort of, we've chosen five, and I mean, we could have chosen another five. Um, uh, you know, there were there was Bill Six. There was the big noisy things, the budget. Um, what struck me wasn't any one moment per se, but it was sort of the collection of, of discussion and debate that we heard about things that you know we haven't heard in the legislature before. You know, these really personal and deep discussions of um, domestic violence and experience with that. Um, you know, a discussion from MLA Cortez Vargas about uh, her struggle with gender identity. You know, those kinds of issues that I think, um, you know, maybe a few years ago I, I, I would not have expected to be really discussed at in a meaning discussed in a meaningful way in the legislature and now we're we're really seeing um, you know people talking about being uh, cisgender and what that means uh, for their experience and perspective I I you know I think you could have um, made a, a lot of money betting that that would have um, come up in debate in, in the legislature I mean it's 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 interesting the the shift in tone I think and the kinds of issues that are getting um, attention and time right now Mm-hmm. I, and Paula, uh, the NDP has found itself engaging in a lot of the shenanigans. It was loudly decrying when they were in opposition. 
Do you think this was to be expected? Or? Well, you know, I don't know if shenanigans is the right word for it. I mean, you know, this new government began, and everybody said, both the government and the opposition, this is going to be a new kind of government. It's going to be more civil. It's going to be more respectful of democracy. So, I mean, I think the NDP, um, you know, found themselves looking like hypocrites because once you're actually in government you find out it's not so easy i mean brian mason decried closure all the time when he was in opposition and as house leader he brought in closure to to ram that farm bill through and it wasn't just that i mean the ndp said you know they wanted to have a more family friendly legislature and they were going to have morning sittings so that they could be done earlier and then they debated legislation you know into the absolute wee hours of the morning till 2 or 3 a.m so you know they defaulted to a lot of the same bad habits that they condemned by the progressive conservatives and of course you know the same can be said of brian Cheen, who said he was going to offer a new kind of civility and there was going to be you know more you know personable discourse in the house and that didn't last much past the honeymoon phase either so it turns out that you know i've never demanded that my parliaments or legislatures look like finishing schools you want you want cut and thrust and you want passionate debate but I think what sours people is that when they hear all these fine promises at the beginning and they see the hypocrisy on both sides at the end, it, it, it leaves a bad taste. And Alicia, you don't cover the legislature, um, but you are a keen-eyed observer, so I'm thinking you can give us an outsider's perspective. Uh, what were your thoughts on how the NDP government has performed generally and uh, what issues stood out to you? Um, I think it's it's been interesting. The government has, um, in this session especially, uh, brought forward a some very transformative and significant policy changes. Um, just looking at uh, arguably the most transformative policy that we've seen in Alberta, possibly ever, being the climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and I think looking at that and comparing it to the madness that has been Bill 6, because uh, the climate change policy um, had so much consultation and uh, you cannot say that people were not consulted when it came to that. And and with Bill 6, I think it, the NDP kind of reminded us that they are a rookie government. Um, and an urban government. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Um, bringing forward this legislation, which I think they assumed would go over and it'd be fine. And it would, you know, they didn't expect thousands of farmers and ranchers to be protesting like every day of the week. And but it's fascinating. I mean, Alicia's right. I mean, there were extraordinarily controversial things in in this government session i mean from from a deficit budget a you know, big deficit budget to the climate change to you know writing transgendered rights into alberta's human rights law and it, in some ways flanks where a government ought to have been more vulnerable they managed to finesse i mean the climate change thing which you'd have thought would have engendered the most blowback they managed all right. Mm -hmm. So it, th that's what makes the, you know, the ugly, ugly way the session is ending. And especially when you think back to how legitimately moved people were at the death of Mamnit Buller and how beautiful the legislature was, you know, the next days in response to that, the real human authentic response people had to the loss of somebody who died um, in the service of his province and while helping others, and then to, to, to default to this, you know, vile ugliness at the end is really disappointing. 
We'll stick with uh, Bill 6, the farm safety legislation, which passed third reading this week uh, after enclosure was invoked. Uh, and the government will now embark on 18 months of consultations. Do you oh think God. this will uh, diminish the storm around the bill or just keep it alive for a year and a half? Well, they're keeping our Bill 6 beat alive with that for sure. Because <laughs> I feel like uh, down at the ledge, and I'm sure Jody Cinema will attest to this, we feel like we've been um, writing Bill 6 stories and Bill 6 stories only. So... Uh, we have that to look forward to for another year and a half. Um, will it diminish the storm? I think we'll we'll see. I, you know, I think the what's passed already comes into effect on January first, and I think um, whether the storm is diminished, we'll see sort of after that in the sort of first few months, um, and and whether we begin to see you know stories come out about farmers who are you know uh, financially hit because of these new. Um, regulate new sort of requirements for WCB and basic OHS um, stuff or not. I mean, I think that'll be the real story. And then I think it'll it'll depend on sort of how invested the Wild Rose is in sort of keeping this issue alive as something that really motivates their base. Because uh, clearly it has um, that that sort of angle to it, right? And, uh, and, and I think obviously the Wild Rose ha has done uh, a lot, everything in its power to make sure during these last, this last month that this issue was the one that stayed at the forefront. Um, and so I think it just depends on whether they, they see that as an ideal political strategy moving forward. Um, but, uh, and it also sort of depends on how far uh, the government tries to go with the regulations um, that come out and, and just what that consultation process looks like. You know, the sad thing is that we have other important economic considerations right now. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of Albertans who have been laid off, thousands of Albertans who are going into this Christmas without jobs and without much prospect of a job in the early new year. And I don't know how much sympathy those people have for, you know, uh, big farm operations that don't want to have worker safety. We have, you know, we have some serious considerations facing this province that are going to require a lot of goodwill and creativity to solve. And if we dissolve into, you know, into this kind of vicious rhetoric, when there are people who need both the government and the opposition to step up, uh, you know, it's, it's a real loss of an opportunity. Uh, we also learned this week that the government's royalty review will be delayed until January. Rachel Notley said, quote, we want to make sure we get, we get it right, that we don't kick something out the door that's not ready. <laughs> will this be another big fight for the government? Oh, I mean, the royalty review is going to be, yeah, uh, Oil, yeah. I think, was at $36 this morning. Yeah, so. yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> so that means it's just falling more and more because it more was 38 uh, at the beginning of the week. Yeah, it's not going to be pretty for sure. I mean, the royalty review, um, as Paula will attest, is is something that um, well, it, it, is it difficult. It destroyed Ed Stelmack. Yeah, it, it's difficult for governments. Um, this government already has, I think, people who are 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 in opposition to it just by virtue of, of the party it is and so everything is harder for this government if a royalty review was hard for a progressive conservative government in this province that won successive governments for decades it's going to be a absolute battle for for the ndp it's going to be critical i think it's going to be one of the issues that defines the next four years or defines their government for sure the term um you know and i think that's why they came out really soon to say 
whatever happens with this review, there's going to be no changes to the royalty rates until uh, 2017. Uh, but uh, that that just set a lot of conservatives off in that they were saying, okay, they're preparing for something. They're just they're just also preparing us for the fact that it's not coming till then. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's going to be a big fight in the spring for sure. Uh, depending on where the government goes with with this announcement once the report is ready to go. Um, one wonders if they were maybe just a little tired after the last <laughs> few weeks and didn't really want to maybe embark on something like this. Well, it's extraordinary. I mean, coming back to what Alicia said, how much they have pushed through in one session. You know, our colleague Don Braid at the Calgary Herald, you know, talked about, you know, is it is it too much, too fast, too soon? In some ways, I, I get the feeling like Notley's almost governing like she's only going to be premier for a year. Um, was it necessary to have this much ambitious transformative legislation in one full session? Uh, I mean, all of these are important issues. We do need to look at the way our royalties work, and we've needed to for a long time. Do you want to do that while oil prices are cratering, and you have a climate change strategy on the table, and you've got thousands of people laid off, and you've got a major debt and deficit problem? Um, you know, it may not be a bad thing for the government to take a deep breath to remember that they have a four-year mandate. Maybe they have no intention of trying to get reelected. I mean, that's that's what it looks like right now. But uh, at the risk of making another turkey joke, you don't need to gobble everything down <laughs> in the for six months. Yeah, I think they need to definitely um, think about the timing because whether it is economically the best time to implement this carbon tax in addition to a royalty, a royalty review. review. Yeah. Um, 2017. Not a lot of people are saying oil will be going back up by 2017. No, a lot of the most recent estimates said late 2016 we might start seeing recovery. So we might not even be on our way to recovery by the time this 2017 rolls around. This week, the U.S. Defense Secretary Ash Carter said allies have to, quote, step up when it comes to fighting ISIS. Uh, And after the Paris attacks, do you think that Justin Trudeau will be feeling some pressure to keep Canadian fighter jets there or get involved in some other way? Well, certainly the pressure seems to be coming from lots of different directions right now. I mean, he is obviously enjoying a honeymoon, uh, as anyone who is reading international press about him. Or Vogue magazine. (laughs) (laughs) God. So Um, pretty. uh, You're right. So, I mean, he's got this honeymoon, so he's enjoying it. And I think that that the the pressure isn't super acute right now. But I think it's going to begin to get... uh, um, you know, a, a lot. There's going to be a lot more pressure soon, and I think it's coming from all directions. The Conservative Party is going to step it up, obviously. Uh, you know, it's it's we're we're heading into Christmas. People have one foot out the door right now. Like they're not they're not really as invested, I think, as they will be when we come back. You know, in the new year, and we keep hearing these kinds of things from the Conservative Party, from the U.S. administration, from now perhaps other allies around. Um, not the so world. much from Canadians, though, eh? No, I mean. I think I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of of you know uh, public opinion numbers on it right now, um, but uh, certainly I think the pressure that I'm I'm hearing m- most about is from sort of other political figures and administrations. You know, I think Afghanistan taught Canadians a very hard lesson. Uh, it's very, it's very costly in every sense to make a major investment in a foreign war theater. Uh, are our CF-18s the difference between defeating ISIS and not defeating ISIS? No, we don't have very many planes over there, and they're frankly, you know, not exactly state-of-the-art. There may be better, smarter ways that we can help than by dropping bombs from the sky. Um, you know, there may be better, smarter ways 
to defeat ISIS and restore stability to Syria. But it's a very, very, very difficult task. I think he'll look for the best way, and that'll allow him to keep an election promise, mm-hmm. which will be win-win for Trudeau. Take out the jets, but put something else in. Yeah. 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 Well, it's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week, we share something we've enjoyed often, but not always with a political connection. Paula? All right, I'm going to suggest a, a great novel I've just finished reading by the um, acclaimed Canadian novelist David Besmergis. It's called The Betrayers, and it's the story of an Israeli cabinet minister, a senior politician who's embroiled in an ugly sex scandal, and he decides to sort of run away with his mistress to Crimea so they can both go to the Russia where they grew up, and he ends up encountering entirely by accident um, a fellow Jewish dissident who ratted him out to the KGB and sent him to the Gulag uh, when he was a young man. And that sounds very grim, but it's a surprisingly darkly funny novel about human failures and human frailties and the capacity for forgiveness. And you get a little bit of Israeli politics, a little bit of Russian politics, a little bit of Ukrainian politics. So uh, a great read, and it's my Hanukkah choice for this week. Uh, Miriam? Um, I I won't have to tell fans of the podcast Serial that there's a new episode out, but if you've been living under a rock and don't know what Serial is, <laughs> listen to it. It's a fantastic um, podcast, one story told week by week. Um, this season, they are um, looking at the story of the uh, U.S. soldier Bo Bergdahl, who um, left his outpost in Afghanistan and uh, was later um, held captive for five years um, and was court-martialed um, upon his return because people began to question him as a traitor and a deserter because he willingly walked off his outpost. Um, we haven't really heard much of Bergdahl's story, but um, serial host Sarah Koenig promises that we will in this season so I'm pretty um, interested to see uh, where it goes and sort of how much into um, Bo Bergdahl's sort of reasons for for leaving that it was we we finally get to here. And Alicia? Uh, well in light of um, the plane load of Syrian refugees arriving in uh, in Toronto late last night uh, I thought I'd recommend a Globe and Mail story um, they've had a series about the refugee crisis particularly in Europe um, but there's one story of a young man who documents uh, with his iPhone uh, his way from Turkey to Switzerland and it's just a really fascinating look at what that journey is like for um, for these refugees that are so desperately fleeing a dangerous place. My good stuff in the gallery this week comes from the competition, and my wife wrote the piece, so it's doubly inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Over at CBC Edmonton, Laura Osmond dug into the troubles the Art Gallery of Alberta is facing and the bold steps they're considering to get people through the doors. It's a really interesting read uh, into that situation. Uh, previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com opinion or on the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula, Miriam, and Alicia for joining me in the newsroom studio. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.